O Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we approach Thee by the power of the Holy Spirit this afternoon, this Lord's Day which Thou hast given us. We ask, Father, for Thy guidance, Lord, that Thou would help us to hear the Word, Thou would help me to preach, interpret, and apply Thy Word. And O Holy Spirit, we ask that Thou would help us to see Jesus in the Word that we might see Him in our life. We might live and die to Thee and to Thee alone. Lord, Thou art glorious. Thou art worthy of all praise and honor and thanksgiving. We ask for Thy leading. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Jesus, that we might love Thee more. We might seek to honor Thee in our lives all the more. That would make this profitable. This would not be a vain exercise. We would truly come to know Thee more. We would truly come to see Thee and fellowship with Thee. Give us hearts of prayer as we hear the Word. Thou would go before us as John the Baptist went before thee. Prepare the way in our hearts for thy word, O Lord. We depend upon thee and we believe in thy Holy Spirit. We might celebrate thee, prophet, from what thou hast to say to us in thy word. We thank thee, we praise thee, and we lift These prayers up to thee, in the name of thy son Jesus. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll look at the first five verses today. Dear congregation, why is it, why is it that so much preaching which churches do is so ineffectual? It does so much nothing. It falls flat on its face. Why is it? And why is it that so many Christians profit but little from the word where it is preached faithfully? Why? It is because the word of God preached, read, studied, proclaimed, if it be so, is often mixed both in its preaching and its personal application, with worldly wisdom, with man's efforts, with man's efforts. Sometimes, having worked quite a bit with evangelical churches, both with a skateboard ministry that went around and did little shows at their churches, and also as a youth pastor, sometimes I wonder, now sitting back and looking, and even at the time, If anyone ever asks at their staff meetings, if anyone ever comes up to them and asks, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? That's a question we must ask ourselves as Christians. It's a question we must ask ourselves as we begin to preach and labor over the word and attend a church and sit under preaching. Why are we here? What are we doing? Is it a vain exercise? 
Or are we, have we come to the mount of God, the house of God, to hear God's word as he speaks to us and communes with us, even in the very act of hearing and delivering a sermon? If the Holy Spirit is not here in this room with us, ministering to each of our hearts, this is all for naught. And so if these words that we find in this book truly be God's holy, inspired, preserved, and infallible word to us, and if he has called and ordained the church to do the things we are doing, then we shouldn't mix it. We shouldn't mix it. And that's why you have these foolish and silly churches packed to the brim with people being led by babes in Christ who don't care one way or another what happens in the church. As long as their paycheck is met, as long as there's butts in the seats, that's what they care about. And so they build these edifices, these massive church buildings, their empires on the bones of dead church members. And they steal from the pockets of the faithful sheep who are stuck there. That's why you have how the Grinch stole service being performed rather than a sermon being preached. The saints engaged in prayer one with another, confessing their faith in Christ their Savior, receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and singing unto God. Let us read from 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, the first five verses. Hear the word of God. This is the Apostle Paul. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. How many churches lean on the wisdom of men? And it's easy to do. Part of me, I I understand where these people are coming from. And it's hard to fault them entirely at times for the culture we live in and what is fostered by these Bible study magazines and these church growth magazines that come out. I understand how easy it is to not wait upon the Lord and try to do it yourself. So we send Hagar's to our husbands and try to fulfill God's purposes with our Ishmael's rather than waiting upon God's promised Isaac. And it's easy to do that. But as Christians, as mature Christians, we wait upon the Lord as long as it takes. For then we will have true power when we employ the arm of the flesh, when we use the wisdom of men, the agency of men. We will not have Christ. We will have man. Let's look at three aspects of our text This afternoon, number one, notice the nature of Paul's message. Number two, we'll look at the content 
of Paul's message. Number three, we'll look at the goal, the chief end of Paul's message, his preaching. First, the nature of Paul's message, and you'll find him laying this out in verses 1, 3, and 4. He says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. That's the nature of Paul's preaching, of Paul's message. We find Paul's journey to Corinth in Acts 18, 1 through 17. That's where it talks about when he first came to Corinth, when he planted the church, and gives a little summation of what took place there. But in Paul's message to the Corinthians now, let's notice a few other aspects. First, Paul's message, he says. He says, my message did not rest upon excellency of speech or enticing words of man's wisdom. Remember, the Corinthians were Greeks. They were Greek-speaking people. Their mindset was that of the Greeks. They were heavily influenced by Homer and the philosophers and all the things that went into their rhetoric and their oratory skills. They placed a very high value on listening to orations, listening to speeches, listening to teachings on different subjects. They really appreciated hearing rhetorical devices used accurately, pristine logic flowing, enticing turns of phrase being given. They sought to be entertained by this. They would often gather, they would often gather together for the mere purpose of hearing someone speak eloquently on something that had no bearing on real life. I wonder how many sermons this morning were preached that had no bearing on real life here in the valley. It says that the Greeks spent their time in nothing else but to either tell or to hear some new thing. That's Acts 17.21. It's not much different in our day, is it? Where people attend church to hear some new exciting revelation like the charismatics. What God's going to say now through the gold dust, he'll speak to us as it comes out of the air vents. That's where God manifests apparently. They want to hear some new exciting revelation. They want to be told some worldly advice. To to be entertained and have their ears tickled. Don't offend us. Don't push on our buttons. Don't point out our golden calves in our life. Just Massage us, send us on our way. Paul, however, gave no thought to this. He gave no thought to the Greek rhetoric, to the desires of what the Greek mind desired to hear. For it was worldly wisdom, and he knew it. He knew that it could do nothing towards the conversion of souls. And we must know that. Whether you're a minister or a layperson, We are all Christians, and we must know that it is not the power and wisdom of man's words and how we use them to entice the mind and the heart, but it is by Christ alone, by the Spirit alone, that someone can be saved, that the soul can be converted. Paul did not care to appear as some fine orator or a deep philosopher. That was not his goal. Nor did he seek to mesmerize their minds with clever turns of phrase. 
pompous show of deep reason, extraordinary philosophical attainments. He had not set himself to captivate their ears by what he said, nor to please or entertain their fancies and their lofty ideas and their desires that were worldly. He says that neither his speech nor his wisdom gave evidence of human skill. That was his goal. That they would not give evidence of human skill, nor the content of what he was saying, his wisdom, nor his speech would give an idea that this came from human contrivance. For he had been taught in another school. Paul had attended one school that taught him what he needed to preach. School of divine mercy in Christ. As one Puritan put it, divine wisdom needeth not to be set off with human ornaments. We don't need to add to it. Make it relevant. Make it interesting. Make it applicable. By using what the culture says is relevant and applicable. By looking at what people want in our culture. Divine wisdom doesn't need to be made to look wise. I was often urged as a youth pastor to be relevant, quote unquote. To be relevant and to be entertaining. Be entertaining. Be chipper, guy. Do something funny. Get their attention. To give the youth what they wanted to hear and hopefully foster some kind of morality in them. That's the best we could hope for. Let's get them moral. Entertain them until they're moral. I would not comply. I hired the wrong guy for that. For to do so, I knew, would to be to sap the very power from the word of God. To sap the authority and the power and the efficaciousness of the gospel by replacing its content, its powerful, wondrous, beautiful content, which pointed to Jesus Christ with slop and slime. Sadly, many pastors and adult services are doing no better. They're doing no more for their adult congregants as we see by the stool and the table taking the place of the pulpit. As we see props, even super soakers, taking the place of the Bible in the preacher's hand. As we see by slideshows replacing exposition, video clips replacing scripture reading. You know the countdown? You guys have seen that in certain churches? On their screens they have up, it's a countdown. Two minutes to go. Tell what? Tell nothing, apparently. Tell a guy comes out and converses with you, uses worldly wisdom, enticing words of knowledge to entrap you. I mean, let's just be honest about what's taking place there. They can have as many good intentions as they want. Keep your intentions. That's great. You're not doing anything other than entrapping people's minds. That's what you're doing. Stephen J. Lawson recently wrote, quote, to an alarming degree, an increasing amount of preaching these days can only be described as slick shtick. 
By this I mean that form of communication in which the preacher has little to say, but tragically says it very well. This kind of nominal preaching caters to the listener by replacing exposition with entertainment. It substitutes theology with theatrics. The drama of redemption gives way to just plain dramatics. Tim Keller. Such negligible preaching, and that's what it is, it's negligence. Such negligible preaching has turned many pulpits into a weekend stage for D-list actors who masquerade as preachers. What passes for preaching in many of today's pulpits is little more than sermonettes for Christianettes. I've read that quote before. I might continue to read it when it's relevant. It's really, really accurate. And it's not going away. I wouldn't harp on the modern evangelical church. I've had people come up to me, people have visited this church, and have said, you're too negative. All you do is critique. Then fix it. And I won't have anything to say. As long as the evangelical church here in America and even reformed churches continue to piddle away and waste the gospel, I will cry out with my little faithful church. There is nothing else that Paul wanted to say. Namely, he didn't want to use enticing words of man's wisdom. He's not going to add to. Now, does this mean that reasoning, logic, the careful choice of words and the preaching of the gospel is forbidden, whether you're a preacher or a layperson, or that we are not to study to give, make sure we're giving wholesome content and delivering it in a way that is understandable and accurate? By no means. That's not what this means. It doesn't mean you can't use oratory skills. It doesn't mean you can't try to say things correctly. For Paul indeed used reason and logic when he came to the Corinthians. In Acts 18.4, when it talks about him coming, it says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. So he used reason. He used logic. He used rhetoric. He used wisdom. He drew natural conclusions, playing off of human reasoning and appealing to it. He even used sanctified rhetoric to preach Christ and him crucified. But it was not reason or rhetoric or logic or natural human abilities to understand anything that was the foundation of Paul's preaching. Paul's preaching was in words that were intelligible to his hearers. And it was decent enough. It was decent enough as far as logic and reason went. But it it did not rest upon or conclude upon man's natural principles. Nor did it make any human proofs, any human ability to reason towards a logical end and deduce truth, the foundation upon which he built his gospel conclusions. Notice the second thing about the content, the nature of Paul's preaching. It was in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now what does it mean that Paul was in weakness, fear, and much trembling? Was he just scared? Was he scared of the Corinthians and he knew there were better orders than him? And, oh man, how can I follow that? How can I follow that speech? That was really good. Was he just scared? Remember that his enemies in the church of Corinth 
did indeed speak contemptuously of him. They said in 2 Corinthians 10.10, his bodily presence, referring to Paul, is weak and his speech is contemptible. So it is possible that Paul, which means small, had a little short guy maybe, and maybe he just had a low voice. Although we do know that he was as good as articulating his point as anyone else. It is plain that he was not a bad speaker, so that's not what he means by this. Remember the men in Lystra. He comes and he preaches, and he preaches so captivatingly that they thought he was their heathen god, Mercury, who had come down in the form of a man because he was the chief speaker, as Acts 14, 12 says. Nor was he void of courage, of determination to accomplish his work of preaching. For in Philippians 1.28, he says that he was in nothing terrified by his adversaries. So what does it mean? It means he didn't boast. And he was afraid to boast in himself. He did not proudly vaunt himself like his opponents did. Worthy super apostles. Paul came later. Paul came later. Rather, Paul acted in his office with modesty, with concern, and with care. Not propping himself up, but propping God up. He behaved with great humility among them. Not as one who had grown vain because of how good he was at speaking or proclaiming the gospel. But he understood the honor that was put upon him as an apostle, as a preacher of God's word. He understood the authority that was given him. And he was concerned to approve and prove himself as faithful to this calling. That's why he was afraid. That's why he was trembling. He wanted to make sure he got the gospel right, that he was faithful in delivering it to his people. Now I want you to note something here. It's, it's no one but ministers themselves. It's no one that, unless you've stood behind a pulpit and delivered God's word, no one truly understands the fear and trembling which faithful ministers do possess and should possess. Charles Spurgeon had to dab the vomit from his beard before he preached every Lord's Day morning. In the vestry, waiting to come out, he was so taken with the very act of what he was about to do they would often give up his breakfast. We have to understand what we're doing up here. For if the people in the pew, if the people who we are supposed to be leading, as we read in Ephesians this morning, to be built up to the edification of faith for the work of ministry, if you guys are to know who Jesus is, I better know. So I better have something to say when I get up here. And what I say better mean something. And the most meaningful thing it can be is Jesus Christ, what he's done for us and what he is doing for us. We often forget that. If doctrine does not give birth to life, it's useless. And so often people skip doctrine and just go to how to live. And that too is wrong. We must tremble as ministers in light of our own insufficiency. In light of our own insufficiency. Notice the third thing about the nature of his preaching. It was in obedience to God's call by God's power. For he says, when I came to you declaring unto you the testimony of God. It was the testimony of God which Paul declared. He preached divine revelation, not human opinion. I think this is true. I've come to the conclusion that this is true. 
that Jesus is probably the, the Christ that we were waiting for. Seems like it. This is my opinion. I put it before you. Please judge it. So most debates, it seems like, are nowadays between Christians and unbelievers. That was not Paul's method. He gave sufficient proof, no doubt. He reasoned. He preached from the scriptures. He pointed to the scriptures and their prophecies and the present miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. As people were being healed and saved and churches planted, he did point to those things. But embellished speech, philosophical skill, and worldly methods of argument could add no weight to the proclamation of the gospel, and Paul knew it. The gospel alone is powerful. The gospel alone is sufficient. And it is most sufficient, dear Christian. It is most effective in your own life and as you share it with other people when you leave it unmixed, undiluted with your own thoughts. The people who heard the preaching of our Lord, you remember in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. This is why Paul came declaring the testimony of God. He wanted to be like his Lord Jesus. Jesus spoke with authority. Authority. Speaking unmixed and unaided truth. Unlike the scribes who sought to add or supplement scriptural teachings with appeals to tradition, to customs, to human persuasion. What was the nature of Paul's message? Second, the content of Paul's message. The content. Paul said, For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That's his content. He knew what he had to say. He knew what his sermon would be. The content, first of all, was nothing else save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Save in the King James, that means accept. It was nothing else except this one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the content of Paul's message. For Christ alone is the sum and the substance of the gospel. And we can forget this as we grow in our faith, grow in our knowledge of the scriptures. We study theology, we read the confessions, all these things that are good. Those are good things. But Christ, if you be not on every page of Scripture, if you do not seek to look under every page, where is Christ? You miss the point. It is Christ alone that must be our content. For it is Christ alone that is the gospel, and thus it is Christ alone that is the power, that is the power of the Christian. What was it that gave Job? What gave Job comfort and power when all he had was taken from him? All he had was taken from him in the most severe manner imaginable. When he was laid low in the dust by the God whom he loved and worshipped. All the comforts of life were gone. When all which provided any earthly joy, any earthly comfort, were destroyed before his very eyes. What caused him then therefore to be able to say in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. What was it? Was it a sermon series on financial stewardship? 
Or maybe a sermon series on being a better you helped him through that. Could those things have given him the tenacity of soul, of faith, to cry out in the depths of his agony, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked I shall return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Is it a Dave Ramsey set that he read and worked through? How to have a better sex life. Maybe that. Oh, thank, thank God. I'm glad I went through those very applicable sermons and sat under them. They even brought in three guest speakers who all sat on benches on the stage and talked. Naked I came, naked I shall return, blessed be the name of the Lord. No, that could not do it. Christ in his person and his offices, which we looked at during nativity, is the sum and substance of the gospel and alone can be the subject of a gospel minister's preaching or anyone's preaching. Anyone's foundation must be that. The gospel of Christ and the gospel of Christ alone can give Christians, tenacious, voracious, and lasting hope. When the curtains of life draw, whether we get sick and come to our deathbed, or we age and live a long life and we come to our deathbed, and those curtains begin to close, what will be our hope? What will it be? Can the oratory skill or the cultural relevance of your pastor's teaching do it no by no means your pastor's business is to display the banner of christ here he is come to him to display the banner of the cross and invite people to come under it echo the words of jesus come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest and the words the close some of the closing words of the scriptures themselves in revelation twenty two seventeen. Come, and let him that is athirst come, and whoever will, let him take the water of life freely. That will give us tenacious, voracious, and lasting strength, hope, and joy. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The reason you can say that as a Christian is not because you understand practical Christian living and finances. It's because you see something. You see a person, Jesus, and you know him. And you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And thus, as the waves wash over you from this life, Satan's assaults, sin's temptations, the destruction of life around us, we simply give way to those billows, those waves, and we be taken with the tide and slammed up against the rock of our salvation. Then... We have strength. Anyone that heard Paul preach found him harping so continuously over and over this one gospel string that they thought, this man must know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Whatever other knowledge Paul had, this was the only knowledge he offered. He showed himself concerned with nothing else than propagating and teaching this knowledge. It was as if Paul had said, I did not value myself upon any of the knowledge which I had attained, 
except that of Christ and him crucified. Or possibly it's as if he had said, I determined to behave myself among you as if I knew nothing about the arts or the sciences or languages, but as if I only knew Christ and him crucified. I sought to make it my goal not to make anything else the subject of my public discourses, but to make Jesus, 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 and him crucified the subject of my public discourses. And I, Paul, though I was acquainted with Jewish laws, rites, and traditions, and even though I was, con- I was familiar with the heathen poets, the heathen philosophers, yet I troubled you with none of these in my pulpit discourses. My whole business was to open up to you the mysteries of the gospel and to bring to you a knowledge and an acquaintance with Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I used this preaching as the means to accomplish that goal of you knowing Christ. Second aspect of his content, the proclamation and reliance upon the the work of the Holy Spirit leaned upon the power of the Spirit. Paul's message, as he says, demonstrated the work of the Holy Spirit. This means that the content or the declaration or the preaching of Paul was in accordance with God's Word, the Old Testament. Wherever the Word of God is preached, dear Christian, wherever the Word of God is preached, the Holy Spirit is present. The Holy Spirit loves to brood, to brood over the word of God and the new creation of a saint by regeneration, just as he did love to brood over the waters during the creation out of nothing. Paul knew that without the spirit of God accompanying his labors, all was lost. All was lost. It would be a fool's errand. It would be a waste of time. And this is why Paul's doctrine of the Holy Spirit is so emphatic in his letters. Third aspect of his content, the content gave demonstration of the powerful work of that spirit upon whom he leaned. Paul preached the truths of Christ in their native dress. He did not seek to make them seem more relevant. He simply preached Christ and him crucified, which, as he says in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, was foolishness. Foolishness. A crucified Messiah... A man who had raised from the dead, said the Greeks. A Christ dead and buried and conquered, said the Jews. That is foolishness. But he didn't say, okay, then how can I make this relevant? How can I make it not look so dumb? No. I will bring out Christ as he is dressed. In plainness of speech, I'll talk about him. For it is the spirit that will apply it. He laid down the doctrine and the Spirit applied it. That's what he means by by the power of the Spirit. He added nothing to it or sought to do so. He relied on the Spirit through his external working and signs and miracles and the other things that were happening and primarily through his internal influences on the hearts of men to demonstrate the truth of what he said and procure its reception in the heart of the sinners he preached to. It is only by the activity of the Spirit of God that the gospel is, as Romans 1.16 says, the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Now, 
This Spirit's working is power because the Spirit works through and in it to accomplish His own purposes. It is power because it is according to God's own prerogative. It is power because it changes a man from dead into alive. Jesus Himself speaks of this divine power that the Holy Spirit would bring. Jesus Himself speaks about it when He's talking to Nicodemus in John 3. Jesus told Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay? Nicodemus goes, What do you mean? How can a man enter into the womb again and be born? He didn't understand it. Jesus went ahead and clarified for him. It was not a physical or natural birth he spoke of, but a divine work, a spiritual birth from death. From non-existent spiritual life to a vibrant, living faith in God. He says in verses 5-7, through Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. There's the ye and the thee. Thee to Nicodemus, ye all people. Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, where it wants. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. It is the Spirit's own prerogative, Jesus says. It is the Spirit that applies the word. That's why a faithful minister knows he gets up here and fails before he even opens his mouth. In and of himself. It's the Spirit that must apply it. It's the Spirit that must apply it. Paul's preaching gave demonstration to this. Gave a demonstration to this. The preaching of every minister makes propositions of the gospel. It tries to prove them logically. That's why I'm exposing the scriptures. However, it's the Holy Spirit alone by which these truths are put in your hearts, dear church. Spirit creates in us a persuasion, a confirmation of the truth of the gospel so that the soul can no longer even fight against it or deny it. It is irresistibly drawn into the truth, into an exception of it. Third and last, the goal of Paul's message. The goal of Paul's message. It says in verse 5, He does all the things that we just talked about, the nature and the content of it. That your faith, that word that, uh, often you'll see it in Paul's epistles. It means in order that or so that with the stated end that this happens. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The goal or result of Paul's preaching was the creation of faith. Romans 10.17 So then, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Not by enticing words of men's wisdom. Not by different strategies. But by the power of God working in and through the preached word. We leave the word of God. And when we leave it, we leave off the power. We leave off all hope for spiritual growth. We must Stay firmly rooted 
chained and bound to the word. The goal of Paul's message also was that there would be salvation and that that salvation would rest not on the arm of the flesh, not upon human agencies, but upon the word of God, by the power of God. A man cannot convince himself or anyone else that these things are true. The things written in this Bible are true. The things which I am preaching to you right now are true. Man cannot do that. And hence, this is one of the issues with modern day apologetics. And just apologetics in general. A man cannot be convinced or convince himself that the gospel is true. Rather, it must be experientially partaken in. I know these things are true because God has shown them to me. Those who are converted know that they are God's children, not because of some means by which a preacher used, though it might have been helpful in that process, but because of the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit within them. Romans 8, 14-16. Paul says, For as many of you are as led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Then this is the key right here, verse 16. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. It's completely circular. The reasoning is completely circular, and praise God for that. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Because I'm a Christian. How do I know that the Spirit bears testimony? In my heart? Because he's bearing testimony in my heart. How do I know that I am Pastor Dane Johansson? Because I am. Oh, that's the argument Mormons make. That's fine. I'm not a Mormon. I'm a Christian. They have no doubt. Christians have no doubt who they are. The Spirit tells them who they are. They know they are born again. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has made them born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If I wake up tomorrow and I've transformed overnight to look like Shaquille O'Neal, then that's what I look like now. And I don't have to have a reason for it other than this is now what I look like. I have transformed into a new creature. Same Same goes with us as Christians. You are a new creature How do you know? How could you know this? Have you not read the scriptures? It says I'm a new creature. That's how you know. Another aspect of the content. That God's power might be recognized, felt, and rested in as the sole cause of all salvation. Not the ministry of rhetoric of some preacher. No matter how effective it may be, in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, just the chapter over, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for having division because I follow Apollos, some said. I follow Cephas. I follow Paul. And others, I'm like, I follow Jesus. And he says, no, 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 no. You got that all wrong. You're not following different sects. You're not following different divisions. It's not the ministry of the preacher himself or the personality of the preacher that you're following. This is not how you were saved. You were saved by the power of the Holy Spirit using the proclamation of the truth. Hence the ineffectuality of apologetics in and of themselves. You don't convince someone. The Holy Spirit does that. Let's close with this. Therefore, dear Christian, 
So notice a couple things, how we can apply this. Live, therefore, in dependence upon the Spirit of God. For in Him alone we have the power to kill sin, the power to fight the devil, to grow in sanctification, and the power to have hope. If you lean on the arm of the flesh, worldly wisdom, you will not be able to do any of those things. Romans 8.13, you'll have the power to kill sin. For if you live after the flesh, Paul says, you shall die. But if through the Spirit you do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. You'll have power to fight the devil. Put on, therefore, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's Ephesians 6, 11 through 17. Also, we'll have hope to grow in sanctification if we lean on the Spirit. Second Thessalonians 2, 13, Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And then we shall have hope if we lean on the Spirit of God alone and not on worldly wisdom, not on our own devices, not on strategies from man. Galatians 5, 5, Paul says, For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Are you wondering why you don't have hope, dear believer? Are you wondering why you're having trouble growing in your sanctification? Why you're having trouble standing upon the Word of God and standing against Satan? Or having joy? You're not leaning on the Spirit. You're leaning on the flesh. You're either indulging the flesh or you're neglecting the word of God for your own ideas or the fancies of someone else, even if it's some great preacher. No, you must have the word of God dwelling richly within yourself. Second, labor and profiting from the gospel preached. We've talked about this for two weeks. Give place to the word of Jesus and be careful how you hear it. Number three, also, dear Christian, do not employ worldly strategies in your evangelism. As you share the gospel with neighbors, family members, other people in your neighborhood, people at school, at work, don't lean on those things that different methods have been given to you. Just lean on the gospel. Lean on the word of God. Share the word of God with them. Talk about what God has done for you in Christ. Lastly, be thankful. Be thankful. Even now in your hearts, Thank God for what he's done. Thank God that he has made the gospel effectual to the saving of your soul. And therefore, then don't fall back. Don't fall back upon human wisdom in trying to grow in your faith. Be thankful to God. Lord, I thank thee that thou hast saved me. That thou hast made the foolishness of the cross the wisdom of God to me. That thou hast made the foolishness of the preaching of the cross the very power by which thou hast saved me. Be thankful, dear Christian. We have much to be thankful for. As we talked about in the Heidelberg Catechism sermon series. Guilt, grace, gratitude. See your guilt. See the grace in Christ. And be grateful for it. There, then for there, how shall we live? How shall we live then, therefore? In light of what God has done for us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again come before Thee. We thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank Thee for Thy Spirit. Holy Spirit, please lead us. Please guide us. 
that thou might be our power and our strength. Help us not to lean upon the strategies and wisdom of man, but upon thy word and thy truth and thy power as thou hast demonstrated it to us in Jesus. We thank thee, O Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.